This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Adrian Kingwell, who is the CEO and founder of Meso Labs. So Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Carl. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, you're very welcome. So look, where we always start is by asking our guests to give us a, a brief introduction into their background and, and journey today, Adrian, obviously you as a, a company founder, that always fascinates me. So looking forward to, to kind of hearing this story. Uh, yeah, quick introduction from me. Uh, um, as uh, as you mentioned, Kyle, Adrian Kingwell, CEO and founder of Mezzo Labs, um, a company that I started uh, about 15 years ago. Um, and uh, a lot, like a lot of people that start businesses, um, I kind of started at the bottom and worked my way up um, as a consultant, uh, you know, just doing a couple of jobs here and there in digital marketing. And then it kind of uh, expanded from there. Um, I've almost ended up building an analytics consultancy around a gap that I saw in the market a few years ago. Um, and it all started really with um, one of my early clients not wanting to do the tagging for web trends, as it was, um, on websites. And so mm -hmm. I said, uh, hey, yeah, we could do that. And actually not having a clue how to do it, but I hired a guy that could. Um, and then realized that, uh, you know, that we were onto something, that there was, there was certainly, um, as, as companies stopped measuring hits and started measuring clicks and, and visits and views and things like that, there was something in this and that uh, I would be stupid not to double down on it and, and really pile in. So it's been a long journey and it's not been easy, but um, we've sort of ended up in a position where we are um, one of the major consultancies in digital analytics uh, in the UK, if, if not in the world, I'd say. Um, not huge. We've got about 30 staff, um, mostly based in London. Uh, but we opened an office in Hong Kong about uh, two or three years ago, um, which is going well. And we recently opened another office in Singapore. Um, probably bad timing on that one because it was just before lockdown um, last January. Uh, but uh, we've got a few Singapore clients as well. So there's, there's potential for us in Asia Pacific um, as an analytics consultancy. Um, but um, yeah, that's pretty much what we do. Anything that's uh, that's to do with measuring the performance of um, digital properties, websites, mobile, um, and um, that that journey through to data driven marketing automation. Um, so it's quite a it's it's become quite a broad piece now. Yeah, yeah, that makes um, makes perfect sense. I guess the digital analytics landscape, given what we've been over the last 12 months is um, is very busy, even from a recruitment standpoint. You know, it's um, a lot of companies focusing their time and attention, which obviously is great for for you guys. I, I know you started to, to touch upon it there about, you know, the typical type of work that you do and some of the sectors and geographies and stuff. But just give us a bit more insight into, you know, what is a typical day in the life of, of Meso Labs, if you would. 
Um, very often clients come to us. They tend to be, uh, we would say, like FTSE 250 clients. So they're sort of, uh, they're, they're on the larger side of things, um, primarily because smaller clients can't really justify the kind of day rates that we have to charge. Um, it's not, not a, a cheap business to, uh, to do the analytics. Um, so our clients tend to be large-ish companies that we're very good at multinationals. We're very strong in financial services, and that's partly historical and partly due to the fact that when you're a London-based consultancy, you'd be, you'd be crazy not to focus on the city of London and Canary Wharf. Uh, it's where the money is. So we're very good with financial services companies, um, but really any multinational that spends time and money uh, driving traffic to their website, trying to get it to convert, trying to work the data harder and to work their marketing channels harder and smarter. That's where we step in. Um, well, most of our clients are UK based, uh, but they don't have to be. We've, we've got a few clients on the continent of Europe and uh, some in America. And uh, as I mentioned before, a larger number in Asia Pacific um, that might be the regional head offices of global multinationals, or they might be local pushing out. Um, but um, to be honest, we're in pretty much every sector, every sector that has a website, um, you know, <laughs> that's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not many that don't have websites in this day and age, obviously. So Indeed. look, let's take you back. So 2006, was it you started the business? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's take us back to that point. Obviously, you, you touched on it briefly around you saw an opportunity in the market and you kind of just ran with it in very entrepreneurial fashion, it seems. But was was there anything more to it than that? You know, what was what was the essence of starting the business and, and how did you end up on that journey of being what now is, is Mesolabs? Um, it's a good question. I think that it's something that I always wanted to do uh, as a teenager, as I was putting myself through university, I was thinking, how do I start my own business? And uh I was, I'm the son of a small businessman and I'm the grandson of another small businessman. In fact, all my uncles run their own businesses. So in a sense, there was this expectation of like, son, when are you going to get your own business? When are you going to be a man? And uh, so there was this kind of pressure to, um, you know, in a, in a good way to say, all right, you, you know, you're doing well in the corporate world, but like, what about when you really, you know, push out and do it yourself. And, and so I always felt that there was that there was this challenge in me that needed I needed to rise to. Um, and I knew that also I had the support of my family behind me. So if I had problems or I, you know, I had challenges, I could turn to them for advice. So that was really helpful. I think it's much more difficult. It would be much more difficult if say my parents were, I don't know, um, in the medical profession or in teaching or something where um, they wouldn't have really understood why I'd want to do that and, and, and go down such a sort of risky path. But I wanted to do it, and I've got this sort of belief in life that anything worth doing has got to be scary and exciting in equal proportions. And if it's not, then you, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. So it was one of those things where I got to a point where I just felt that I had to do it. Um, and I, in many respects, I left it too late. I was coming up to my 40th birthday, and um, I had children relatively early, but they were reaching a point where they were they didn't need me around quite as much as they did before. They were teenage uh, teenagers, so I just felt if I don't do it now, I never will. And um, and that's pretty much how it, how it kind of happened. One day I, I woke up, I'd had enough of my of the current job. I really hated the person who was running the company, and I just thought, okay, time to do it for real. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah no more excuses. 
what were you doing before Mesolabs then? Were you in this space or was it something completely different? Well, ironically, Kyle, I was uh, head of marketing for a group of recruitment consultancies. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> um, I came, you know, I had some experience in that world where I could see how, how quickly people could make money um, and how they could build a successful business. Um, and, um, and ironically, I was, because I was head of marketing and I was surrounded by very alpha type personalities, male and female, um, the only way that I could kind of show them that marketing was of value was by showing them uh, how, how productive marketing could be rather than just running events and stuff and saying, hey, I'm doing a good job printing T-shirts and mugs. Um, I actually got into Google AdWords in an early day um, and uh, showed them that the money I was spending on Google AdWords was converting at a certain rate and was producing a lower cost per lead than advertising in Recruiter magazine. And, uh, and then suddenly the room would go silent. When I showed the dashboard of Google AdWords, they would go, oh my God, you're onto something here. They couldn't argue against it, that I was spending their marketing budget far more wisely and effectively than, uh, than they could have done themselves. So unwittingly, I uncovered the power of analytics in that role um, and um, sort of got a bit of a reputation for being data-driven uh, in the early days, which was not something I planned. It was just a way of winning an argument, really. Let the numbers do the talking. Yeah, that's really interesting. Obviously, the synergies with my business and, and what we do. But of course, um, you know, I think the term ROI now is, is, you know, it's spoke about that much. It's almost its own buzzword, which is interesting to hear you kind of, you were doing that to business leaders, you know, um, 20 years ago or, or something like that, which is, which is interesting. So before we delve into the meat of the topic, one thing that I'm always curious to, um, you know, ask, I guess, from business owners and entrepreneurs is kind of the challenges that you faced in the early days, um, we've had a lot of guests on this podcast who have, you know, probably earlier on in the start of that journey, who I'm sure this advice might be very, um, very interesting to. So what, what were the kind of key challenges that you did face in those uh, in those early days? I think for most people, they would fear winning their first customers. Like, how do you do that? And uh, for me, that wasn't really a big challenge because I knew how to sell and I'm, you know, quite comfortable networking with people. So you don't need many customers to kick things off. Um and you just need to make sure that you're doing stuff that is work that is profitable for you um, and that the customer keeps back coming back and asking for more because there's no point in doing lots of one-off small jobs. Um, and uh, you spend all effort winning a customer. And if you can't get repeat business out of them, then that's you're making life very hard for yourself. So winning the customers wasn't difficult in the early days. The real problem I had was staff churn. And I can tell some horrific stories about being let down by people who you know, you'd go to all the effort of hiring and then they, they'd walk out on you. And I didn't blame them. Um, I blame myself for not being careful enough in the recruitment process and not working better with the recruiters. And I was lucky because there are, I had a number of recruiters who kind of understood where I was at and what I needed. And they got very good at focusing in on what my needs were or what Metso's needs were. And, uh, and by presenting me with the right candidates... Um, not just ticking the skill set box, but having the right personality types, I could get much better at hiring people that would stay. Uh, but I'll be honest, all the uh, all my profit in the first couple of years was obliterated by recruitment fees because I was constantly replacing people. Like they would last, well, if I was lucky, they would last six months and then they'd be gone. So um, with that kind of churn problem, uh, I realized that I, I did not have a sustainable business. 
So I had to focus on hiring smarter and then retaining people um, and then putting in place things in Metza Labs that would mean that once the right kind of person had joined us, uh, that they would find it very hard to leave, that they would really enjoy the work, they'd, they'd like the company, they'd enjoy working with their colleagues. And um, once we got about four or five people on board that were of roughly similar personalities, it became much, much easier to recruit because you could, you could find lookalikes, you could find people that would fit well into the team. And the culture of Metzer Labs has grown out of that. It's become a very strong thing. Um, even during lockdown where people aren't in the office, uh, the culture is still very strong. I'm very proud of it. And it's not something that I have to nurture particularly hard. It's, it exists because it's a good culture. It's the, we've, got, we've got good people that enjoy working together and, uh, and everyone's, everyone's very supportive of each other. So it doesn't rely on team day out or, okay, everybody, come on, beer and pizza. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't have to happen. It's nice when it yeah. does, but it doesn't have to happen because the people do enjoy working with each other. And that's a, that's a very good thing. So really, that was my biggest challenge in the early days was just, uh, you know, keeping the keeping the talent happy and also relieving them of the kind of blockers that would stop them from cracking on and doing great stuff. I mean, that, that I've employed them to be analysts. So anything that they're doing that's not focused on delivering value for clients, I've got to find a way of removing either improve the system or find somebody else that can do that job um, uh, and just get the analyst focus on being as billable as they possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, the, the whole cultural piece is is massive in any organisation, right? The truly successful businesses out there are the ones that kind of harvest that um, that great culture, which I guess leads us into nicely because I think if you've listened to the other podcasts in in this series, you know we bang on about that whole cultural transformation piece being imperative to how organisations are going to go on that journey to becoming data driven. Um, I guess one of the challenges if you will of the things that you know i hear most often is that you know organizations are spending so much time money resource getting to the point of delivering insights or recommendations back to the business and that change element never comes so really keen i'm I'm sure you've seen this over your career many many times so why do so many organizations spend so much time money resource generating insights and then nothing happens with that? Um, I think it's pretty obvious why an analytics team would want to generate insights because it's the point at which all the work that they've done sort of materializes in some kind of business value. So they're like the cr- insights are the crown jewels of analytics. So they've got nuggets of gold that, that they're the point at which an analytics team can say, look, we've found something that's interesting and you should be able to do something with this, the actionable insight. And people have been talking about this for years and years. Ever since I started Metz Labs, um, Avanash has been talking about finding actionable insights, not just any insight. So we've known about this for a long time. The problem is that a couple of things. One is there's basically cultural resistance to being data-driven. I mean, like marketers really like cracking on doing stuff, mostly with gut feel. And most of them, like nine out of 10 marketers, would rather not be driven by the numbers. Although they accept that the numbers are important, they'd rather not be. One in 10 is very much a sort of a, an analytically driven uh, marketer. Um, but I don't really see those people growing in, in the world of marketing. I don't see a lot more of them. So you've got some cultural resistance. Secondly, um, I think that the analytics team have, have realized some time ago, you just can't present people with a spreadsheet and expect them to to pluck the insights out of that. You have to present it somehow. So what do they t- tend to do? They visualize it because 
Marxists like pictures more than they like things in rows and columns. Fair enough. But too, too much time and effort is spent in data visualization. And I can't complain because Metzer Labs has been asked to build countless dashboards, a very small percentage of which are actually used in the real world on a daily basis, sad to say. But uh, a lot of time has been spent in Power BI and, and uh, Tableau, uh, building visualizations for data. Um, and uh, unfortunately, marketers look at them and go, oh, look, there's a peak and there's a trough. I wonder what happened there. Uh, and maybe somebody does a little bit of insight work to, to try and drag it out. Nine times out of 10, the insights appear in a PowerPoint deck or in a PDF, and they're sent round by email, maybe presented in a, in, a, in a monthly meeting or something. Everyone nods their heads, and then they're filed away somewhere, never to be looked at again. And the irony is that most of these insights are kind of like a very retrospective. They're like looking in the rearview mirror, and they don't actually affect current day performance. Uh, I noticed in uh, <clears throat> my first client, a major bank, that nobody would buy car insurance on a sunny bank holiday weekend. Like we could see in the traffic that nobody hit the website when the weather was good on a, on a bank holiday weekend. The answer to that is, the re reason for that is obvious. Like people are out enjoying the weather rather than sitting at home worrying about their car insurance. So why are we advertising over a bank holiday weekend? Why did somebody not check what the weather would be and say, hold the advertising because it's just not going to produce anything? Well, uh, going forwards, everybody can produce a, an insight report that says, this is, this is what we discovered, the weather affects uh, by behavior, but nobody actually builds it into the system. So there's, there's something missing in that final mile uh, of getting an insight out to marketers and then actually making it actionable, actually doing something with it. So I think that um, more and more we're going to see ways of getting insights into channels where they can do something about it. I'm thinking of things like Slack and Teams, Jira, um, the platforms that they're using already. Um, this is where the insights need to be delivered. And they mustn't be saved up in, and put it stuck in a PowerPoint ready for a presentation at the end of the month. They need to be delivered now. If we spot something now, somebody needs to take an action very next day. So how do we do that? And I think this is where the the industry is going is that we can solve this problem of marketers not being data driven if we get the insight straight to the point of action they can do something about it then they'll realize pretty quickly whether the insight was worth something or not and uh and then they will be more likely to respond to the insight when it when it next appears in their inbox mm -hmm. yeah it's a really interesting concept isn't it because obviously the whole you know, marketing piece and, you know, every business now is on that journey to, you know, trying to use data and analytics to, you know, drive revenue, reduce costs, operational efficiencies, mitigating risks, whatever the case may be. Um, but that whole cultural piece and just the the reluctance to do things differently seems, it seems a problem that it's so easy to talk about, yet the reality of changing it within any organization is is so difficult. Um and I guess, you know, we, we often talk around telling stories with data to get buy-in from people that we need to get buy-in from in order to, you know, start to drive that cultural change from the top down, so forth and so on. And I guess we talk about visualizations, which you went into a lot of detail there. My perception is, Adrian, that these visualizations are maybe not as often wanted or, you know, as, as regarded as we may believe that they are. You know, um, so a business people, 
maybe they're not excited about having to log into some analytical platform to gain insights. So, and the the flip side of that coin, which interests me, is we seem to be obsessed with creating this self serve culture. Like if you you know every organization knows talk about how do we make self serve, how do we make self serve, but yet we're still kind of at the point of saying, well, when we're presenting these insights and these visualizations, they're still not being used. So why are we now expecting these people to go in and do that themselves if it's not being used when we're giving it to them? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think um, the word self serve is kind of wrong. It assumes that somebody is prepared to dig into something in order to find an answer. And some people are, but most people are fundamentally, I don't hate to say it, but they're kind of lazy or they'd rather be sticking to their day job of doing what they're doing. Um, so we have to flip it over and we have to say, how do we get this valuable insight to them rather than, you know, it should be push, it shouldn't be pull. Um, I can understand why people want to create a self-serve environment because, of course, in, in the analytics team, your analysts should be focusing their time on uh, high-value activities, uh, you know, doing deep dive analysis rather than just going, oh, yeah, all right, I'll find that report for you. Here you go. You know, that's that, I can understand the argument for creating self-serve, but really it should go beyond that. It needs to go to uh, a, a, a push environment. So uh, we're... We're helping the marketers do as little work as possible, as little analytics work as possible. And this is why I've come up with this concept of the analytics exoskeleton, which is a concept that, um, you know, an exoskeleton is like a, almost like a robot that you wear that will make you more powerful. And uh, so you not, may not be able to lift a car, but if you had an exoskeleton around you, you'd be able to do it. So how can we create an analytics exoskeleton around a marketer how do we help them get the power of analytics without actually learning any particular analytics skills? Um, and uh, and we can do that in various ways. And we can you know we can use some AI to do that, or we could just deliver insights right into their hands so that they can use them while they're making decisions about where they place their next uh, campaign or, or uh, whether mid campaign they should actually be pulling, you know, closing it down and switching the the, uh, the budget to something else. So how do we how do we create an environment around the individuals so that at the point of action they can make a, a real time decision rather than being pulled away from it and having to do a little bit of, bit of research and um, you know and and just take time to if if they're going to actually make that change at all? Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I know when we spoke offline, you talked around um, kind of what you've done within the businesses to almost productize insights right that that's the kind of route that you've taken um so talk us through that and i guess with with the the, the lens of why switch to making a product and kind of what was that light bulb moment and catalyst for you thinking that that's that's the way we need to go so why switch to making products fundamentally running a consultancy is not that difficult to start but it's very difficult to scale and most consultancies or agencies, if you look at uh, the, their growth curve, they kind of, uh, the vast majority of them peak at about the £2 million worth of, of uh, gross profit. Um, and that's because they haven't found a way to get um, to scale sales and marketing in a way that sort of relieves them of that founder um, or, or network-based uh, growth strategy. So they kind of like, you know, they get... Uh, double-digit growth through the first five years, and then all of a sudden it kind of flattens out. And I was looking at the business and thinking, okay, we hire some very expensive people, but they're very good, 
um, and uh, we have a rate that we charge them out to, and they do great things for our clients. It would be awesome if we could just take some of their time and help them build a product that we could sell instead of us instead of us just selling time and materials to our clients. So it was uh, a risky path for us to take because it might take focus away from uh, the consulting business. But if we could keep the consulting business going, but we carve out some time uh, to, to develop a product, we could have something that could be the future of, of the business. So there was a good business reason for doing it. Um, I should also say that product-based businesses are valued much more highly than um, consultancy-based businesses. So when it came to my exit strategy, um, I could get a bigger multiplier on revenue if we were selling a product than if we were selling services. Um, you know, there are many reasons for it, but but mostly it's because it was very, very hard to scale Metzler Labs uh, beyond a certain size unless we uh, started selling product um, as well as services. So that was there wasn't a particular light bulb moment when I realized uh, this is a good idea, but there were certain points in the uh, journey of Metzler Labs where I suddenly thought we have no, we almost have no choice but to do this. Like it is such hard work to keep consulting um, on the straight and narrow that that we've just got to start um, really putting our weight behind the product, and uh, and so we're now kind of midway through that transformation into a kind of product and service hybrid, um, and uh, and so far uh, it, the progress has been very good. It's been very encouraging, um, and we've managed to do it without any external funding. It's been really tight, particularly, you know, with 2020 being a pandemic year. Um, business has been tough but and challenging, but uh, we're doing the right thing. As we're coming out the other side, this is absolutely the right way to go. Yeah, yeah, makes makes complete complete sense to me. Talk us through that product, and obviously we're not expecting you to kind of give away all your uh, all your IP and materials here, but um, that, that product in terms of what, what it is and kind of the, the problem it's trying to address, if you can. So the, the product is Uplifter. Uh, Uplifter is, uh, a, at the moment, is a campaign tracking platform. So we noticed that a huge number of uh, campaigns in any client are actually being launched without any tracking in place. Uh, some clients of ours have said that they reckon that about 50% of all campaign traffic is uh, has no UTM code attached to the um, the referring link. So it's not possible to see whether a campaign is actually um, having the right effect, the expected effect. So we built a platform that would, first of all, make sure that everybody tracks campaigns correctly. And then once we've got the data uh, into data, uh, Google Analytics or in Adobe Analytics, uh, that we could do something with that data and start generating automated insights to be pushed straight back to the point of action. So um, we, we, we built an anomaly detector to spot anomalies in traffic. We built some machine learning to, uh, to try and link the anomalies through to human insights. And uh, we're now starting to sort of connect all these dots together so that people can get their tracking sorted out and get feedback on whether the campaigns are working or not. Uh, I'll give you an example of, a, of the kinds of things that it, that it can spot. First of all, that um, uh, there's a problem on the landing page, that people are getting to the landing page, but that for some reason they're not getting off and continuing the journey. Um, there's a product with the actual advertising itself. 
that it's attracting the wrong kinds of audience, for example. Um, so it's, uh, I don't know, attracting um, uh, teenagers and children to a website that's selling car insurance. They're never going to buy car insurance, but they, for some reason they're clicking on the ad. Um, another one could be that um, uh, there's something broken in uh, the whole process and, um, and the marketing team don't know about it. So these are the kinds of mid-flight insights that people should be doing something about because millions of pounds worth of advertising budget is being spent and we need to fix stuff pronto before uh, before it's too late um, ironically in many companies it's not until the end of a campaign that you start looking at the data and thinking well we're not sure whether that was a success or not i wish we knew this stuff earlier because we could have done something about it so essentially the product has been built to solve the problem of um inefficiencies within the uh, the drive to website process um, and beyond um, in, in the in the end-to-end -end customer journey um, the early indications from our clients is that they they love it um, and they're, they're moving from 50% of all uh, campaigns being tracked to hundred percent very quickly uh, they particularly love it if they've got global organizations where um, I don't know that the Japanese market do things differently but they're able to use the common platform and therefore they can start comparing different geographies, different markets, like for like, because they're using one common taxonomy across the whole organization. So it's, um, it's not the only product that, uh, that sorts the, uh, the front end process out, but it is the only product that starts really adding value to the data that's coming through and doing something about it. So this is getting very close to to my idea of the analytics exoskeleton. It's giving the power of analytics, not necessarily to the analytics team, but that is putting the insights straight into the hands of non-analytics individuals that can do something about it. Yeah, I mean, that's it's powerful that, because I think, as we talked about before, we're, you know, we're in this space where we're trying to build and create these self-serve cultures because we want to drive a more data-driven business culture, right? But ultimately, as we've discussed, um, business users and stakeholders aren't necessarily that bothered about diving into the weeds to find the information that they want to make those decisions. So ultimately, you know, creating this product that allows them in, I presume, almost real time, um, I guess, yeah. to a certain extent, yeah, to yeah. to kind of see what's going on and, and make some decisions based on information that's put right in front of them that they can't ignore. Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. Perfect. And I know you touched upon there about, you know, feedback's been very good have there been any kind of tangible results that you can kind of i mean share? the only way to really measure tangible results when you're selling a product is is like what do your revenues look like what are you actually you know what's coming in um and we track mrr monthly recurring revenue uh as one of our well it's, it's our main kpi and um we're on track to reach 20k of mrr by the end of june which is great um, and by the end of this year, we should have reached 50, which is something of a landmark for us. We're, we're hopeful that by June of next year, we'll reach 100K of MRR. To give you some idea um, for anybody out, else that's out there and look, thinking about going down a similar path, converting a consultancy into um, a, a product-based company, um, in order to create uh, 100K of MRR, you, if you look at the profitability on that compared to... Um, uh, selling consultancy services, you would have had to sell possibly up to 10 times the value of projects to get the same amount of profit at the end of the day. So I know that we're going to be using a lot of that profit to pile it back into sales and marketing for the product. But 
you know, from a business point of view, it is so much more profitable and so much better use of our time to be to be creating a valuable product and selling that than it is to be um, to be winning new projects. It's not to say that we'll stop going after the project work, um, but uh, but in terms of the focus of the business, we we want to see a sort of a much more even mix between the two. Mm. Yeah, yeah, makes makes sense. So I guess moving into the artificial intelligence piece, because I know you touched upon there that the product, you know, is got machine learning built into it. But I know that when we spoke offline, you mentioned that, you know, that the whole piece around AI had helped you with that transition into becoming a product-based business. Just just talk us through that a little bit, if you would. Um, when I decided about, gosh, about four or five years ago that we should be building a product, I didn't have much of an idea of... of um, what it was that we should be building. Uh, well, or rather, I had lots of ideas and very little idea as to which was the best one. So I thought I would, I thought the best thing to do was to ask a few clients, like, where are your pain points? So we we asked a couple of clients, and one of them described this problem that they had in trying to identify quickly um, where the, the breakages and errors were in uh, customer journeys, particularly when campaigns have gone live. Um, and wouldn't it be great if maybe we could come up with an anomaly detector that would spot these wobbles and uh, and flag them really quickly because it could otherwise take a long time for people to discover that they had a problem on a particular page or, or, or the particular ad. So uh, the challenge with that was that we didn't have a lot of data science skills internally that would um, uh, that we could actually build a product with. So luckily at that time we had a relationship with the University of Westminster. Um, uh, primarily so that we could sort of spot young talent and encourage them to join Metzolabs. Um, and one of the lecturers said, have we heard about the Knowledge Transfer Programme, which is a government-funded, uh, British government-funded programme that helps bridge the gap between academia and uh, industry. Um, but you have to build a product with this programme money, with this funding. So we had kind of a good business case, a use case that we could solve for. Um, and we got the funding and um, we got a, a chap called Tom to join us through the program. And uh, and he started building an MVP of uh, an, an anomaly detector and using machine learning to link it to insights. So he built this sort of core AI engine, um, which we then started you know, applying to Google Analytics and Adobe Analytics data to see what it could find. So that at the core of our product is like the brain of our product, the stuff that actually creates the smart insights that will be pumped out to people is a is a very smart anomaly detector that's been fine-tuned around um, uh, digital analytics data. And uh, uh, it, I think without that, we would just have a utility. We just have a tool that does that helps people do a job. It effectively is like a smarter version of a spreadsheet. But once people have sorted their tracking out correctly, the AI will then take the value of the tool to a whole different level. Um, it won't completely replace human insights. There's always a role for people to add that those extra nuances that you get from um, you know smart analysts. But it will uh, do in a very short period of time the kind of analysis that could take days, if not weeks, for a person to do. Um, and it will do it without any bias as well. Obviously, one of the great advantages of AI um, is that you can, if you work it correctly. Uh, eliminate some of those personal biases that say, oh, it's probably this, and then you go and find the data and to support your hypothesis that was actually gut-driven and not data-driven. So it, it's, um, 
it's it is a good piece of uh, technology that we've created that should make human the the analytics team the human part of the analytics team that much more efficient in what they do as well. Nice, yeah, very very interesting. Okay, and I know one of your um, USPs, if you like, Adrian, is you know you're very much forward thinking, right, about kind of what comes next as far as insights and analytics across across the industry. So. Um, what, what, what does the future of insights look like as far as you're concerned? Uh, there's been a bit of a buzzword in the industry over the last 12 months about the death of the dashboard. And uh, I think that is probably a little bit premature to declare that uh, history. But I certainly think that there's a decline of the use of the dashboard. I mean, dashboards have been overly complex. I mean, really, they should just, if they've got two or three KPIs on them, then then surely that's fine. They don't need to go into the nth degree of detail. Um, I think that if we if we had all agree that it's the insights that people want and they want them delivered to the point of action, then I can see that the future of, of insights, the future of analytics will be much more about delivering value into the hands of people that can do something about it. So this concept, as I mentioned before, of the analytics exoskeleton uh, of of delivering analytics to empower individuals to make data-driven decisions. Um, in many respects, it's no different from the tips that you could get, the emails that you get with stock tips or, or racing bet tips. You know, there is some analysis that's gone on under the covers, but the subscriber to the email doesn't really care about how the analysis works. What they care about is that it's worth putting having a punt on this horse on the on the next race, or that this stock is undervalued and therefore it's worth investing. So they they will judge the um, uh, the effectiveness of the of the analytics work by whether the the tip the insight actually works in the real world or not. Mm. Uh, I think that's really where the value of uh, of uh, insight driven analysis comes from. Of course, the other side is to do with um, uh, using data to 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 power the machine of uh, marketing automation, um, and I think that's very much. Um, the industry is already well aware of the potential of that um, and we'll get smarter in the way that we can execute but ultimately when on the human side of things when it comes down to making data-driven decisions um, I think that uh, it will be much more in the next few years about putting uh, insights into the hands of individuals. Yeah and that makes complete sense I guess in terms of how that is facilitated for example with your product if we're talking about you know the death of the dashboard and I appreciate that's uh, you know tongue-in-cheek somewhat but what does that look like as far as you know th- these people within these business teams and functions um, you know being able to use this insight how, how is that delivered if not a dashboard? Um I think that the uh, the insight itself can be delivered as a as a simple message. Uh, it could be through Slack or Teams, or um, it could be posted into Jira, uh, or it could be delivered straight to the platform where that marketing person is operating. It could be in, in into the Salesforce stack, for example. Um, there needs to be. It can't just be a one way message as well. It can't just be like uh, I don't know, like an SMS message that goes you know, do something about this. There has to be some feedback on it. So the machine needs to understand whether that insight was good or not. Well, you know, how close to the to the money was it? So there needs to be a simple, if you like, thumbs up, thumbs down, or a scale of one to five. How did you rate this insight? Because that's the only way that the um, artificial intelligence can, can learn to get smarter. 
I think at the end of the day, what we will end up with is a uh, almost like a warehouse of insights that will become more like a playbook for marketers. So in other words, that, that example I had earlier of the bank who shouldn't be advertising on a sunny bank holiday weekend, that should be rolled into a playbook and it a- actually should materialize in something that stops any advertising on a sunny bank holiday weekend. So you can actually build it into the system. So instead of Instead of knowledge sitting in the heads of smart individuals and potentially walking out the door when they decide to quit and move on to to a competitor, um, how about we start to get some of that knowledge into a place where new starters can refer to it so it becomes part of a sort of an onboarding pack? Uh, This is the way that we do business in this particular company. Um, And also it can be improved upon. So people could say, oh, this is this was an insight about, uh, I don't know, the weather on a bank holiday weekend. It also applies to other factors. You know, we can start to develop that insight. So the I can see that in the future, we'll start to get smarter about the way that we manage and develop insights. We actually start enhancing them and we maybe we test them from different directions and find that whether any affects a proportion of our public. And there are other people where actually it has the complete opposite effect on. So... Um, I think that's the way it will evolve. It, it, it can't just be a, uh, as, it, it certainly can't be a, a pull environment, a self-serve environment. It has to be pushed, but there has to be that feedback loop that makes the machine, the system, uh, the, the, the retentive piece of knowledge management that much stronger and smarter in the future. Mm. It's really interesting and fascinating concepts because I guess effectively what you're talking about there is simplification of that insight to be a singular message to say, right, you know, as far as we are concerned, you know, the product, this is what you should do effectively rather than what happens at the minute, you know, where uh, an executive has a dashboard, he's looking at something and there's still, a, a, I guess, a relative amount of nuance in that, right? He's still got to try and pick some insight out of that as to what that actually means, which is still an element of instinct and intuition with that i guess which is an interesting concept okay yeah cool no that's um that's that's fascinating so i guess what does the future look like for for you guys then uh company wise um obviously we're going to continue down this path of developing the product and we're using our uh professional services our consulting capability to um not just in um uh, build capability around the product but also to to get feedback from clients about future developments, other things that we should be building into the product. So uh, as I mentioned, we've started with campaign assurance or campaign tracking as being um, the use case that we're we're focused on, but it will extend out and we'll realize that the technology could be applied with a subtly different tweak to it to help, I don't know, the content team or the social media team, or we could start to get more specific about what an, an analytics exoskeleton would look like for different user types throughout the digital marketing team. In theory, we could apply the same technology to people that are outside of digital marketing, um, not even in the marketing department at all. Um, some of the projects we're, we're, um, we have with some of our clients looks at operational data. Um, uh, I'll give you an example, a football club, for example, wasn't just interested in their website. Uh, they were more interested in how they maximize revenue on match day. Um, and you know when crowds start coming back into into grounds, it's not just the value of the seats that they've sold. It's it's the beer that they've sold them, the hamburgers that they've sold them, the shirt, the program. 
Um, how can we maximize all of this opportunity? So you, you can start to look at operational data and think, well, is there some way we could create an analytics exoskeleton for the guy that sells beer in uh, stand B on Saturday afternoon? You know, it could be something, it could be a, a, um, an actionable insight about his stock of carling is about to run out and he needs to pull a barrel from the stockroom midway through the first half so that he's got enough at half time. I don't know. It, it, there is lots of applications for this kind of technology. It does not need to be restricted to, uh, to the digital marketing team. Mm, yeah, interesting. Fine. So I guess if, um, if people out there are interested in kind of having a conversation with you about whatever they've heard today or, you know, have got any questions or interested in making, maybe working with you guys on, on you know, the products and services that, that, that you're offering, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, you can uh, reach me through LinkedIn, uh, Adrian Kingwell at Metza Labs, uh, or I'll give you my email address, which is adrian at metzalabs.com. Adrian is A-D-R-I-A-N. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Adrian, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for taking uh, your time to impart your wisdom on us and the the audience. I'm sure it'll be very well received and uh, yeah, very much look forward to kind of tracking how you guys get on in this uh, product space. Thank you, Carl. It's been an absolute pleasure. Perfect. Speak soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Hey.